Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, this morning I invite you to turn with me in God's holy word to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And this morning we will be looking at verses 16 through 22. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. Hear now the words of Solomon, the teacher or preacher. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that your spirit would be with us this morning. Give me illumination into the text. Bless the preparation. Bless my mind and my mouth that I may bring forth treasures from your word through the power of your Holy Spirit for the good and benefit of your people, that we may receive from your mouth, that we may learn and grow in our understanding and our love, that we may grow in our joy of your salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far in our study of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has tested wisdom and pleasure and work and concluded that none of these will bring ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose, or ultimate satisfaction in this life. From a godless, under-the-sun perspective, everything in this life is hebel. It is vain. It is vanity. It is temporary and fleeting and empty. However, when Solomon considers life with God in the picture and above the sun perspective, he then begins to talk, as we saw last week, about how we can have some limited enjoyment and joy in this life and that this is a gift from God. The godless perspective fails to see the things of this life as a gift from God. It's not a gift from anybody. The godless do not believe that there is a God. And so how can any positive thing in this life be a gift from God? How can family or work be a gift from God if there is no God? So they fail to see the the good things of this life. They fail to see it from an above-the-sun perspective, and so they don't see this life as a gift. And so Solomon ended the first major section of Ecclesiastes last week on a positive note, with an above-the-sun perspective. But beginning with our text this morning, 
he begins a new section in his book, and he returns to his experiment of testing things from the under-the-sun viewpoint. And this time, Solomon is going to consider the concept of justice or injustice in a fallen world. And so verse 16 uh, shows us the problem. The problem. This is our first point this morning. Verse 16, the problem. Moreover, I saw. Solomon is, is using his uh, personal observation uh, to conduct this experiment. He's not dealing with the abstract. He is looking at reality around him. Under the sun, he's considering the reality around him without bringing God into consideration. And what does he see? In the place of justice, where he expects to find justice being carried out, he sees wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, where he expects to see righteousness being carried out, even there was wickedness. So he has these expectations. I expect to see justice here and righteousness here. When he looks, that's not what he sees going on. Solomon doesn't spell it out explicitly, but he probably meant at least the first two places he would go when he expected to see justice and righteousness would be the courts, the, the legal system, and then the marketplace where business transactions were, were carried out. In the courts, Solomon expected to see people being dealt with fairly and justly. He expected to see the guilty being punished and the innocent being vindicated. In the marketplace, Solomon expected to see sellers using fair weights and measures, and he expected to see buyers paying what was truly owed. But since he doesn't spell it out, we can also take this to mean that he looks around at all of life, not just in the courts and in the marketplace, but in all of life. He expects to see justice and righteousness in every aspect of life. In all of our human interactions with one another, Solomon expected to find justice and righteousness, but instead he finds wickedness. Wickedness and injustice in the courts, wickedness and injustice in the marketplace, and indeed wickedness and injustice in every type of human interaction, including governments and nations and families. Sin has brought wickedness and injustice into the world, and it has affected all of our human relationships. It affects all of our interactions, whether on a small scale or a large scale. And just as it was in Solomon's day, so it is in our day. When a spouse abuses their spouse, that's injustice and unrighteousness. When a parent abuses his or her child, that is injustice and unrighteousness. That's not the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to see a, a parent loving their child. You're supposed to see a spouse loving their spouse, their husband, or their wife. That's what you expect, but instead you get abuse. When a mother murders her baby in the womb, that is injustice and unrighteousness. When a nation violates the sovereignty of another nation by invading in order to get access to their oil fields or what have you, that is injustice and unrighteousness. When a government passes laws that promote violence and wickedness, that is injustice and unrighteousness. 
And all you have to do is read any issue of the, the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, and you'll see how people are treated by their families and their communities when they convert from whatever the religion of the land is to Christianity, and then especially when they begin to tell others about Jesus Christ you begin to see injustice and unrighteousness carry itself out. Now these words for justice and righteousness that Solomon uses here in verse 16, they first appear together in Scripture in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, where Yahweh declares that he chose Abraham, quote, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And so the very first time we see these two words together, righteousness and justice, we see that they are rooted in the conduct and character of God himself. Righteousness and justice are rooted in the character of God himself. Job 37:23 says the Almighty will not violate justice and righteousness. And Psalm 33, 5 says that Yahweh loves justice and righteousness. He loves it. Now, justice and injustice are hot topics today, but we must be careful to let Scripture define what justice and injustice is rather than the world. If you let the world define what justice and injustice means according to their own godless standard, what you end up with is what the world calls just is unjust in the eyes of God, and what the world calls unjust is just in the eyes of God. Or to put it in another way, the world, in its defining of justice and righteousness, calls evil good and good evil. True justice and true righteousness must be rooted in the nature and actions of the God of the Bible who then calls his people to act accordingly. I called Abraham to do justice and righteousness according to my character. And so God calls his people to, to act justly and to, to act righteously with one another in whatever interaction they have in the family, in the marketplace, in the legal system, in government, wherever you are, according to his standard, not the world's standard. Listen to 2 Chronicles 19, where King Jehoshaphat appointed judges, and he charged them, saying this, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Do you see what Jehoshaphat did there? For the judges in the legal system, he said, you are answerable to God, and you must judge in accordance with God's standard, not your own standard. You are to judge without partiality. You are to judge without taking bribes. And a bribe, of course, is given to pervert justice instead of to see justice carried out. Isaiah 5 pronounces a woe or curse upon those who vindicate the wicked because they were paid off. They accepted bribes, and so the wicked got off. They, they didn't face any punishment for their crimes. 
This still goes on today. An innocent person's in the wrong place at the wrong time and gets convicted of a crime they didn't commit. A guilty person is able to, to hire skilled lawyers, especially if they're wealthy, and they're able to get the guilty party acquitted. I read just a couple weeks ago about a, a man who, who sat in prison for six years waiting for trial. And while he was in prison during those six years waiting for trial, evidence came to light that conclusively vindicated him, definitively proved that he was not guilty. And yet he sat in prison for six years. That's not justice. Six years of his life and all that that entails was stolen from him. So Solomon sees the problem. He looks around at the world. He says that things are amiss in the world because man has rejected God and, and acts according to his own way rather than God's way. So that in places of justice and righteousness, they're not there. Wickedness is prevailing. This leads us to verse 17 where we see Solomon's first consolation. Solomon's first consolation concerning the problem. How does Solomon console himself when he looks around and, and sees the wickedness? I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. See, Solomon knows God. He knows what God is like. He knows the true character of God. And so he says within himself, I said in my heart, God is just and righteous, and he's not going to let this wickedness stand. Because God is just and righteousness, he cannot let wickedness go on and continue indefinitely. There is coming a day when every person, man, woman, boy, girl, will stand before the judge of all the earth, who alone does what is perfectly just and right being perfect in his character, and he will repay all that has happened here on earth. Matthew 16, 27, Jesus says, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 states, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There is coming a day of judgment and reckoning when God, through his Son, Jesus Christ, is going to set things right, and injustice and wickedness will be repaid by him who is perfectly holy and perfectly just and perfectly righteous. Now, don't mishear me. This doesn't mean that we're not to pursue justice and righteousness here on this earth. Philip Ryken states, quote, Depending on our place in society, the spiritual or civil authority that God has given to us, it is our responsibility to fight against oppression. As fathers and mothers, as pastors and elders, as citizens and public officials, we are called to do what is right by God's standard in the home in the church, and in society. 
Yet, unfortunately, even our very best efforts will not bring an end to all oppression. End quote. So when we do see injustice, and when we do see that even our best efforts fail, and that, that even our best efforts will not put an end to all oppression going on in the world around us, what is our consolation? It's Jesus Christ and his kingdom coming as we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer. For when his kingdom comes, the unjust and the unrighteous will be imprisoned for their wickedness in the lake of fire. And those who had justice perverted or withheld from them will receive perfect justice in the life to come. They will get from God what was withheld from them by man. Matthew Henry writes, Men have their day now, but God's day is coming. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself, especially with the, the rampant increase that we've seen in the past five years or so, why are unbelievers so focused and determined to try to right all wrongs and create a world without injustice right now? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why are unbelievers so focused and determined to try to right all wrongs and create a world without injustice right now. It's because they do not have an above-the-sun perspective. Their only focus is on this life and not the life to come. From an under-the-sun perspective, this world is all there is. You only get one shot. So you've got to fight and expend yourself against injustice as the world defines it. And you've got to try to create a utopia or a heaven on earth in your own efforts. In other words, unbelievers in their pursuit of what they call justice, quote unquote, are trying to do what only God can do. And that is make heaven and earth meet in a world of perfect holiness and justice. That's what utopia is. That's what man in his unbelief is seeking to do, is to create heaven here on earth. But we know from an above-the-sun perspective that God is going to cause that to happen at the second coming of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We cannot bring heaven down to earth. And we cannot bring earth up to heaven. But that's what unbelievers are trying to do. They're trying to be like God. Just like Eve, just like those at the Tower of Babel, trying to be like God. And man, in his pursuit of justice as defined by an unbelieving world, is trying to be like God. They consider God's justice to be injustice. They would rather have their own version, their own standard of justice, rather than God's standard of justice. And so this is Solomon's first consolation. When I, when I see all the wickedness, when I see what's going on in China and in Canada and in Russia and the Ukraine and in Africa and the Middle East, my consolation is this. God's going to make it right. God is going to make it right. Verses 18 through 21, we see Solomon's second consolation concerning this problem. Solomon's second consolation. Basically, Solomon says in verse 18, 
One way God uses injustice and unrighteousness in this world, and we talked about this a little bit this morning in Sunday school, about how God is sovereign even over sin. One way God uses injustice and unrighteousness in this world, verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man, God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. God, one way God uses sin in this world is so that we can recognize that sin has brought us down to the level of animals. The fall and our descent into corruption manifests itself in the way that we treat each other in corrupt manners. A snake eats the eggs of unhatched animals while man kills unborn human beings in the womb. Abortionists are snakes. Predators easily capture the young animal upon which they like to feed. Predators kidnap women and children and abuse them or traffic them and treat them as less than human. Have you ever thought about why they use the term predator to describe especially heinous acts of sin? It's language from the animal world. Predators show no sympathy for the prey that they kill. Nature is red in tooth and claw, and so is mankind who sheds the blood of other human beings created in the image of God. If you read the Psalms over and over again, the wicked are likened to animals. I'll just use one Psalm to illustrate this, Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, verse 12, the wicked are likened to bulls because of their strength. The horn in ancient Israel was symbolic for strength and power. And David likens the, the wicked to, to bulls because of their strength. And they just, they run over their enemies. They plow over the, the oppressed, the poor, the needy, the righteous. The wicked appear to be strong and have the strength of bulls. Verse 13 of that same psalm, the wicked are likened to lions because they, they mock with their mouths and hold them open like a lion roaring, satisfied after it has captured and killed and eaten its prey. The wicked sit back and they, they laugh and they scoff and they're full of mirth at their unjust and unrighteous ways, like a lion roaring. In verse 16 of that same psalm, the wicked are likened to wild dogs who circle their prey. They, they, they tighten that circle as they get closer and closer for the kill, just like the wicked surround the righteous. In that one psalm, David uses the imagery of three different kinds of animals to illustrate what the wicked are like. Sin has brought us down to the level of beasts and we act beastly toward one another rather than humanely. And on that level, on the level that sin has brought us down to, verse 19, same thing happens to both, both man and beast. We die. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast in the sense of being brought down to the level of beast due to sin. Now, man does have an advantage above the sun because only man is created in the image of God. Animals were not created in the image of God. But sin has brought us down, it's, it's brought us down to their level. 
Verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. They come from the same place, and they go to the same place. Psalm 49, 12 says, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground in Genesis 2, and then when he curses in Genesis 3, he says, To dust you will return. Man and beast together are tied to this creation on the level of injustice and wickedness due to sin and the fall. And what happens to man and beast after death? Verse 21, who knows? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody under the sun knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Only God knows what happens to animals when they die. That's a question that children like to ask. When they're young, is it not? Will Fluffy be in heaven? Will Spot or Tiger or whatever animal pet you have, will he or she be in heaven? Only God knows what happens to animals when they die. Only God knows where the soul of a particular individual goes at their death. God has revealed to us from an above-the-sun perspective that, that the souls of those who are united to Christ by faith immediately are made perfect in glory and enter directly into the presence of the triune God, while the souls of unbelievers are in hell waiting the final judgments. But we don't know concerning specific individuals. We can look at people's fruit. I believe that he or she was a true believer, and I have every confidence that they're in heaven, but only God can look at the heart. Only God knows those who belong to him. And I said this was a second consolation or comfort. You may be asking yourself right now, what in the world is comforting about this? I mean, he's talking about death and the mystery of death from an under-the-sun perspective. Why, why are these thoughts comforting to Solomon? Well, first, verse 18 when we see the wickedness and the vileness and heinousness of our sin, that is a grace and mercy from God to show us our need for salvation in Jesus Christ, as well as to magnify our amazement. If we're already saved, to magnify and increase our amazement at the depths of God's grace. I was nothing better than a brute beast. I was beastly. spite of the wickedness and injustice of my sins, God sent his son to die in my place and to make atonement for all of my wickedness, all of my unrighteousness, all of my injustice. The vile wickedness and injustice in the world around us should draw our eyes to the justice and the mercy and the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Though we were like beasts in our trespasses and sins, Christ, being rich in mercy and love, joyfully sacrificed himself as our high priest so that we could be covered by his shed blood. Comfort doesn't get any better than that, folks. But second, implicit in this section is a belief in 
the resurrection and the continuing of the soul. Solomon has some conception or idea about the resurrection of the dead. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the grave. The soul continues on after the body is laid in the tomb. He has a conception of the afterlife, just like Job and Abraham did. It may not have been as clear to him as it's clear to us now that we have the New Testament, but the Old Testament saints did have an understanding of the resurrection of the dead, going all the way back to Enoch in Genesis 5 when it says, he walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. It doesn't say, and he died. It says, he was not, for God took him. Understanding that there is more to life than this, that our bodies will be raised incorruptible and indestructible, and that God knows where the souls of the departed will go, is a comfort to us when we see the wickedness of this fallen world. It's a comfort to us when we see the wicked flourish and the righteous persecuted to know that God will answer that. If not now, then at the end. That is what Psalm 73 is all about. Only when David entered God's temple did he finally understand the ultimate ending that lies in wait for the wicked. When he looked at them, he saw their success, he saw their flourishing, and while the righteous are over here being oppressed and persecuted, And he says, I wanted to give up. My heart almost failed within me. And then I entered into the temple of the Lord, and I saw what awaited them at the end. It's a comfort to us to know that fortunes will be reversed at death, just like Lazarus and the rich man in Jesus' parable. The rich man enjoyed this momentary life to the fullest, but after death he was in eternal torment. While Lazarus suffered for a moment, but after death, he was in the eternal enjoyment of God alongside Abraham. There is no comfort for an under-the-sun perspective on death and injustice, but there is great comfort in the -the above-the-sun perspective. For we know what God will do. We know what God has said. We know what God has promised. This brings us to verse 22 in Solomon's conclusion. The problem is injustice and wickedness and unrighteousness in the world. The first consolation is that God will take care of that in the end. The second consolation is that God opens our eyes and uses sin so that we see the sinfulness of our sin, so that we can look to Christ through whom we know what awaits us in the life to come. So what do we do until the end of time when God rights all wrongs and we receive the life to come? What do we do? So I saw, Solomon says, that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. First, enjoy your work here on earth. You don't have to be consumed with justice as the world understands it and fights for it. The world says today that if you are being silent on some social justice issue, then that means you are complicit in that wrong. And so you see corporations going woke and advertisements going woke and TV shows and movies going woke and so forth. Everybody is being bullied by the social justice warriors because they do not want to be canceled. They do not want to lose their money. 
They don't want to lose their market share. And if their concerns, the concerns of the world, are not your concerns, well, then they label you to embarrass you or to shame you or to cancel you. Well, you're just a, a racist. You're a hater. You're a homophobe. You're a transphobe. Whatever else label they can call you. You're fringe. You're radical. You're fundamentalist. But Solomon's conclusion is this. Go about your life and enjoy the portion and lot that God gives to you as a blessing in this life. Knowing that the ultimate blessing from God will be revealed and realized in the life to come. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, not the world's kingdom and not the world's righteousness because the world seeks to establish its own righteousness apart from God and they do not submit to God's righteousness. We know what is coming in the new heavens and the new earth, so we do not have to be consumed with the injustices of the here and now as the world is consumed with it. It doesn't have to take up and be our sole purpose in life to right all the wrongs that we see around us. We can try. We can do our best efforts. We can call people to repent. We can point people to Jesus Christ. We can work for justice and righteousness according to God's standard, not the world's standard. But it doesn't have to preoccupy us like it does the world. We don't have to be in a panic like the world panics. If I don't do it now, it's never going to happen. We can go about our business seeking to do God's justice and righteousness and enjoy the benefits of this life as blessings that he gives to us to enjoy in the here and now. Because we have the full assurance of the blessedness of the life to come for all who are in Christ Jesus and the recompense that Christ will bring with him to pour out on the wicked on that last day. God will judge the righteous and the wicked through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. When he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Amen and amen.